The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. It's Joni Siegel here, and I'm the hostess for today's podcast. I want to remind you to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please check us out on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm really doing a pitch for that because we want to get a custom URL. And we can't get a custom URL until we have a certain number of subscribers. So if you're listening to this podcast, go to YouTube, find our channel, and click on that subscribe button. I would really appreciate it. If you want further information on the podcast, we've got a great Facebook page, and we definitely respond on that page. We also have a website, theaddictionpodcast.com. So check us out, and please subscribe, listen, watch, and share, if you will. So today's episode is an interview, and it's an interview with Jennifer Jimenez. As one of the nation's leading advocates on addiction recovery, Jennifer Jimenez has become a regular fixture on numerous television networks and across social media platforms. Now, we had Jennifer on the podcast before, just audio, and I listened to that interview today. And I will tell you that Jennifer's story is quite harrowing. I mean, all addiction stories have their element of sadness and horror and, um, you know, regret and, you know, degradation, what have you. But her story really is, it's something else. And we'll have her share that story again today on the video and also update us in terms of what she's been doing. She was a much sought after runway model. She appeared on magazine covers from Vogue to Bazaar and Marie Claire. And she was the youngest model ever to appear on the cover of American Elle. But surrounded by a fast paced Hollywood lifestyle and unprepared for the trappings of fame, Jimenez eventually found herself at the mercy of her own drug and alcohol demons. Both her personal and professional life spiraled out of control and her Hollywood dream had become a dark and lonely place. Ultimately, Jennifer found the courage to reclaim her life and take control of her career. Her journey back to sobriety and her story of redemption are now part of her message to others looking to find their own path to happiness. Let's talk to Jennifer Jimenez. Just want to apologize for some sound distortions in this interview. I suspect there was a bad Wi-Fi connection. Anyhow, I apologize in advance. Jennifer, thank you for being on the podcast again today. Thank you so much for having me. You have such a great story. Um, so I'm going to ask you to tell that story. But I, I'm going to start a little bit different. You know, you and Tim work together in terms of helping in the area of addiction. What is that like? How do you guys work together? You work well together? You know, um, that's a really good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that one. By the way, I get so nervous every time I'm about to speak or do an interview. Like my hands are sweating and I'm getting cotton mouthy. So excuse me. Uh, I think it's like me getting out of the way and letting God come and uh, speak through me. But Tim and I, 
uh, working together. There is this magic that's created that when we work, the synergies are out of control. Like we could be living our lives, our personal life. You know, we work together, live together, do a life together. In our personal life, you know, we could be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, when we have to hit our mark, we hit it. Like there's not even, it's like we just feel each other. And that happened from the first time I met him that weekend, we ended up doing an intervention um, by accident on someone. And uh, it was a girlfriend of mine's sister. And um, we did a five hour intervention and got, we ended up getting the girl into treatment. But we had never worked together. We had just known each other. And it was just like magic. And my girlfriend happens to be a manager out here but it was in Florida where we hadn't seen her. And uh, she's a friend of mine who's a producer. And I don't know if you guys ever thought of doing a show together. And this is like days into us meeting each other. She's like, what you do is magic. Oh, and by the way, my parents had have cameras in the house. So we keep re-listening to you guys. We didn't, we forgot to tell you there's cameras as you were doing the intervention. And, um, and that story just kind of resonates always about the magic that is created when Tim and I are in our work mode, like help mode. You know, we both have wow. the same passion. I think when you have the same passion and the same beliefs and the same cores, um, magic is created. And that is always our intention. And we've yet not to have someone go into treatment if we're doing an intervention or when we're speaking it's like it just flows you know and and we're not there's nothing that's programmed it just we we just flow back and forth from each other and our stories are different you know our emotions are the same i believe in everyone pain is pain happy is happy sad is sad um i i talk a lot about other things other issues like abuse physical abuse verbal abuse sexual abuse um emotional abuse and and mental uh, illness as well so and he like rounds that out as well you know but he doesn't have necessarily all those things you know have right. an eating disorder problem, you know? <laughs> right, right. I, I I digress, and I know my husband's going to start signaling me to get a little bit back on track, but what you, what you bring to mind is um, I'm a musician, and when I've watched musicians on stage, you can have a solo artist, and they can be brilliant, but when you have a group of musicians on stage, you not only get the brilliance of the musician aimed toward the audience, but you also get the synergy between the members of the group and it makes a huge difference. So you guys are, I would call you guys a power couple. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's like we do create music. It's like we, in the creative world, as you know, it's like we create that magic that it's like, I, I always remember when I heard my sponsor speak, I was like, oh, and they had CDs. I was in treatment, but they let me go to go see her speak with my then other sponsor. And uh, they gave me the CD and I went back to my uh, treatment center and I would listen to her CD every day. And I'd be, I'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, this part, this part. And it was like music to my heart, you know? And uh, what I think all this is, even when you're performing, you know, and you're, it's like music to our hearts. And Tim and I have the same passion. So our hearts are in the same place, you know, to want to yep. help people yep. that I feel we're creating, you know, magic. Absolutely. God's work, not but, ours. But now I have to make you go back to the beginning <laughs> okay. and tell your story. How did you first get introduced to drugs or alcohol? How did that happen? And what was your journey? Well, I first got introduced to alcohol um, by seeing it. 
uh, I'm from California, I was born in California, my family's from Argentina, and I grew up in Argentina. And in Argentina, my family gathers for lunches and dinners, and it's like the whole neighborhood comes over and you call everyone aunts and uncles that really aren't your aunts and uncles. And I remember there'd be so much food on the table that the drinks were on the floor. And this visual, I remember, the more they poured, the longer the parties lasted. I remember people drinking and having fun. So that was my introduction to alcohol, that people drank and had fun. They danced they laughed. I, I re, as I tell you the story, I remember I can hear them like, you know, in the back of my head, like just laughing and dancing and smiling and just celebrating. And we'd come back and forth to the States and my parents had another child, my little brother. And when I was around six and a half years old, my parents realized my little brother and I would have more opportunities in America than in Argentina. So they sacrificed everything, their friends, their families and their careers. And we moved back to California. And um, what had happened was, I already felt uniquely different. I didn't speak the language. I'm born in California. I do not look like the typical California girl whatsoever. I did speak <laughs> your language. I spoke Spanish. I learned English in school. I just didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, and uh, I just always remember I wanted to be like everyone else, you know, and uh, I saw a lot of clicks in school and there was these two girls, Lisa Crone and Becky fucking Hall. And oops, I'm sorry if I said that, I'm oh, not allowed to. And I just wanted to okay. be like them, you know, and, uh, and there was nothing I could do to fit into their groups. And one day I created this story that I had a twin sister and her name was Natalie and she lived in England and she had blonde hair and blue eyes. My, my family sent her abroad to study and I don't, but I created that story and those girls are like why didn't you tell me oh my god you know we want to know all about it and boom that first layer that mass syndrome for me came on that I called and wow. that was my first that I remember putting on my face you know and I feel we wear many masks in life um as the years went on like there was a lot of trauma that happened in my childhood and parents were fighting parents divorced you know um there was mental illness in my family there was addiction in my family and uh at 12 years old I remember it was a lot going on and I was taking care of my little brother and uh I was making him a sandwich in the kitchen and I looked over into the dining room my parents had a liquor cabinet and I went gosh I just want to feel like they did in Argentina happy you know because they equated drinking a happy so i went and i got this cup and i filled it with different liquors and i poured it in there and i took my first drink until this day my perception tells me it felt like this it went down into my throat and it was warm and fuzzy and it got into my stomach and it kind of imploded in there and all of a sudden i felt like a cross between the giant uh, the giant green jolly and wait the giant green jolly wonder woman and shira i felt <laughs> like i had arrived you know and immediately that like i got bigger and the world was okay you know i was okay and the world came on for me um but you know the progression of my disease has led me to everything and anything else uh, i didn't become a full-fledged alcoholic overnight um however when i was 13 years old i was two months shy turning 14 on the san monica pier on a sunday afternoon my mom my little brother were playing with me there um in santa monica um and uh at the pier and this photographer named Bruce Weber came up to us and till this day, he's still one of the biggest photographers in the world. And he said to my mom that I had the right look and he was shooting this thing for this huge designer and it was actually legit and that he, you know, he was legit. And if I could show up the next day, my mom was a little hesitant. And of course I convinced her that night to let me show up. 
And my life literally went from growing up in Argentina where there was dirt roads and donkeys walking by all over to becoming a supermodel overnight. And um, wow. my life changed like that, you know, and I guess that was my destiny. Um, but I wore many masks. I always said I was probably a great model because I'm a great chameleon, you know. Um, I believe people in recovery or in active addiction, that's one of our survival mechanisms. Um, and, you know, the things that had occurred to me during those years of my early teenage years was I was five, six when I got discovered, I'm five, 10 now. So my body started developing. I'm Latin, I'm curvy, you know, so um, they would, you know, all the eating disorders, you know, kicked in. The, the supermodels taught me how to eat boxes of laxatives and, and um, lettuce and, you know, the no eating and, and all this stuff and, and drinking started kind of coming in and I would try different drugs. I was kind of like a trash can. I I would try, you know, from my freshman year to my senior year, I only went to school two months out of the year, but I got that diploma. Um, and I tried to fit in like a normal kid in public high school, and then I'd run home to trauma in my family. Um, and uh, then I'd go to this, you know, world that was the adult entertainment world, and I was literally selling sex when I didn't even know what that was at the time, you know, and I wore many, had many roles, and I, I wore many masks. Um, and uh, drinking uh, helped and the other drugs, like all the things I was trying kind of helped, you know. Um, but when I was 17 years old, I was close to turning 18 years old. I was with these two girls, they were models. And, you know, I remember like at, we were at one of the girls house um, and they had these, they're drinking out of these beautiful crystal something champagne glasses. And they were like, it's so-and-so champagne crystal. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna get some. Like, where was I gonna put it? My mommy's house? You know, like I just <laughs> acted as if. I was a great chameleon, you know? And this one girl brings out this white china plate, pours all this white powder on it, cuts it up, rolls up this $100 bill, and they start snorting away. And they looked at me and they said, do you want some? And I was like, yeah, I haven't done some in a while. Like I've never tried cocaine <laughs> until that moment. But I gotta tell you, the moment I tried that first line, I was hooked. For me, wow. cocaine gave me a heartbeat like nothing else ever has. In the end, it brought me to my knees um, and it betrayed me. But what drugs and alcohol did for me was it told me things no one was telling me. It told me I was beautiful, told me I was smart, told me it was my best friend. It told me it would never leave me, it told me I was invincible. It told me I was unstoppable. It told me, I, I told me all these things until it stopped telling me. And then I was in quest for more, you know? Um, and- You know, I'm gonna stop you just for a second because you know what, I, that just, it just occurs to me, you know, I think sometimes we have people listening who have friends or family who are addicted, right? And they don't understand why the person can't stop. But the way you describe the drug makes you feel, why would anybody want to stop that? Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Something that makes you feel that good. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, you, we hear about it, you know, parents don't understand why can't he just quit? Yeah. Why can't he just have one? That one's a great one too. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of times, especially like this day in age where we're at right now, that alcohol gives us courage, you know, the courage that we don't have because we're so shy, we're stuck behind computers or always on our phone, that it's so hard to have inner interaction or can be communicative with other people that, you know, then it's like, oh, I feel like a fish out of water. You give a normal or you give someone a glass or two of something, a drink or two of something or a pill of something, they start feeling good, you know? 
know, they start feeling really good. And then they're like, they're charismatic and this and that. But then they, the ones that have the gene or have addiction, you know, like, um, they can't stop. Like, I can't stop. I know that, you know, this is my way of being is, and I'm very, very, uh, uh, very honest about it. I see cocaine once, I'm like, oh no. Twice, I'm like, hmm, third time, I'm five pounds thinner by the end of the night. You know, like I, I, I am that powerless over it. Um, you know, there's times too, and I don't even know why I'm going on this tangent, but there's been times, I know that people, some people say the obsession has been lifted for them, that it's ne that they've never thought about drinking or using ever again. I have, you know, there's not a bathroom I don't go into where I'm like, shoot, I could have used here. Thank God I didn't use here. Or, you know, uh, a couple of years, two years ago, two or three times, a glass of white wine sounded good. I was like, why can't I just have a glass of white wine two or three times that year? And I'm like, why can't I smoke weed and listen to Bob Marley on the beach? Like why? I was living in Delray Del at the time. And I finally told, I tell on myself, it's one of the things I learned in recovery. And I told on myself and um, I did some writing and stuff and I was talking to my sponsor and finally it went to like, well, when I smoked weed, I would get paranoid. Like I'm that person on weed. I'm like, oh my God, the shadow, da da So I would never normally in my right mind smoke weed and be on the beach because I'd be too paranoid to be there. And a glass right. of wine, like, first of all, I wouldn't even know what kind of wine to order. And wine was my last resort. Like, you know what I mean? Don't, I'm not like I didn't drink it, but it's like, it was not my first choice of drink. Um, so my head still at times, the disease still is there just waiting, you know, and trying to talk to me. Well, I think, I definitely think that there, there isn't an understanding on the part of a lot of people, you know, what the craving is like and how, you know, addictive spiritually, mentally, and physically these drugs can be, Yeah. do you know? And, and there's not an understanding of that. But I guess the point I was trying to make, which may not make a whole lot of sense is like, if there's something that makes you feel really good, you want to do yeah. it. Why would you not do yeah. it? You know? And I think that um, sometimes people who have never experienced that, they don't, they don't get it. No, they don't. And there's also this, that I also, and this is just my opinion, that I believe um, that if, say, uh, I have the gene and my, the next person sitting next to me has a gene and we go and we both use and they have coping skills and I don't because they don't have as much trauma or they didn't have that much turbulence in their childhood, but they did have some because we all have, you know, trauma. Um, I, with me without coping skills, I'm bound to be doomed, not them. Right. You know, so I think that uh, without coping skills and having the addict, the isms uh, or the gene, it's a hard thing to say. Like a normal person wouldn't be able to grasp that. Right. I, 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 I agree. So back to your story. Okay. <laughs> so I think we ended off with, with cocaine. Yes, cocaine. Um, and how much, and how much you loved and it. How much I loved it. And you know, by that moment that I was, I took that line, I was hooked. So it was game on, you know, for me, that's my, my drug of choice. Um, I, like I said, have tried everything, but drinking and cocaine came hand in hand. And my first thing I did was, it was drinking. Uh, I took my, I took my first drink and that was my first drink, a drug drink of choice. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
that was it. It was game on. And I was still modeling and it was about the drink and drugs, you know, and as soon as I graduated high school, um, the next day I got on a plane. By the time I had graduated actually high school, I had gone to Europe or some other state 33 times. Like I was always on planes. I became the provider of my family. You know, I was bailing dad out of jail and paying for mortgages for mom and, and raising my little brother and helping him through college and blah, blah, blah. So I became, you know, the, the parent, you know, and I think that a lot of people, people also who come from a chaotic family like I did, you know, we uh, tend to feel very responsible for our family. Um, and if you come from a chaotic family, once again, I repeat that like I did, and you have to step in as parent role, um, we feel very uh, responsible. And yet it's hard, even in my recovery 14 years later, um, to, to like, I'm still breaking that pattern. Like I sometimes I go to therapy and I remember at times I said to my therapist, like, oh, I feel so guilty. I could have done more for my brother, you know, this and that. And he's like, we did this one session this one time. And, and he said to me at the end of it, well, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like I failed them. He goes, of course you did. You know, a little child was never supposed to be put in that position, you know? So mm you have to embrace yourself with the strength that you really have. So I'm saying this for all those out there that feel responsible for their families or are still, you know, hitting themselves in the head that they could have done, should have done, you know, more as, as a ch child being in a, trying to pretend that they were an adult. I hope that you can embrace yourself with the strength you have and realize that was never supposed to be your role. And that just shows how strong you really are. Um, so right. all these things were happening and there were times my mom couldn't uh, travel with me, be, and she did travel with me most of the time, but the time she couldn't, the agents would promise my mom the world, that I'd be taken care of, looked after, I'd live with the head agent, someone would pick me up, and you know, in the times that I went on my own to different countries, I would land in those countries and I was, I was all alone. No one picked me up. I lived in like male model apartments or I lived in models apartments. I never lived with any head agent, um, and, uh, and in those times, I saw and experienced a lot of dark things. And I was too afraid to come back to the States or come back home and tell my family what had happened to me because I thought if they would tell me, if I told them what happened to me, that they'd immediately remove me, then who would take care of us was my thinking. You know, again, I felt very responsible. So by the time I graduated high school, the next day I was off to Paris and, you know, I, I had already tried, you know, cocaine and I was hooked and it was about the drink and drug and I kind of out stayed my my welcome there and I did the same thing I geographically changed I went to London then Milan then Japan again I thought different you know countries would cure me um, and where I went um, I brought the problem which was me and uh, there I am I'm 21 years old just three years later almost after the time I tried cocaine I act like I got it going on I'm still living at mommy's house I just come back from Europe and on this day I realized that I was on a five-day run now it's different than knowing I was on a five-day I realized it was like such a moment for me I realized I was on a run I haven't slept I haven't eaten I haven't showered I was sweaty and gross um, and uh, there was this party going on in West LA um, at Bar Marmont, uh, and my mom lives 30 minutes outside of LA, and uh, I got there early. There's a big party happening. I showed up around three or four. It, the party started at 10. I told the owner I'd missed him, and I wanted to catch up with him, uh, but the truth be told, all I wanted is a place to drink and use, and I was there. I was getting high and, and drinking, and the party was hours later, and people started coming in, and I remember just sitting there going, oh my god, I got to go act like I'm cool. Now, on that day, don't 
forget, I just realized that I was on a run for five days. And I'm like, oh, I got to act like I'm cool. Like, what? Like, I have to act like I'm cool? So I go to the bar. I don't know if anyone's ever felt that before. Like, you got to act cool. Um, oh, I'm sure. And I'm there, and I'm trying to act as if, and these people are talking to me, and I'm fine, fine, oh, fucking fine. And oops, sorry, I can't. I, I, it's okay. And uh, it's totally okay. This one girl I'm talking to at the end of the night looks at me and we know each other. And at the end of the conversation, um, she says to me, Oh, who are you here with? And I go, Oh, I'm all alone. And something happened. It was like, alone, 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 all night long, the rest of the night. I couldn't make that echo go away to save my life. And uh, I remember being back at my mom's house and I was at the edge of my bed and I was in the same moving motion, you know, just rocking motion. And I kept seeing myself, hearing myself say, how am I, what am I gonna do? What do I do? How am I gonna figure this out? How am I gonna figure this out? And it was like, boom, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go get a little bit more. I'm gonna do a little bit and I'm gonna cop one more time and then I'll be able to figure this out. Like how long have I been living like that? Probably for a long time, but I felt it. You know, again, all these moments are happening to me. And um, I go, I'm driving up Fairfax. There's a street called Fairfax in LA and I'm gonna make a ride on Fountain. And uh, there's all these like guys at the corner and they're smoking. And I just remember the sun was coming up and the glare was hitting that building. I look over at them and I'm like, what are these hot guys doing here? I love that I can remember they were hot. And, uh, <laughs> oh God, poor me. And uh, I'm turning and at the, the corner, this girl was smoking and she looked at me and we made eye contact and she's like, it's in here, it's here. And uh, I walked in and um, and I walked into the double doors and, and I, I'm thinking it's an after hours party because there's so many young people and they're all hot. Like I'm thinking I can get free drinks and drugs. I've done that before. And uh, sure enough, I walked into the doors and I see all these people and they're in a circle and I hear wah, 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 wah. Well, it was a meeting um, I walked into <laughs> by accident um, that day and there is no accidents, no, is no coincidence rather. And uh, I'm looking around and I'm watching everyone and people are standing up and they're applauding. And I'm like trying to figure out at the time now I didn't know it was a meeting like I'm trying to figure out like do you have to intro yourself before the party starts like I don't get it and so the guy three seats over said some of his name and I'm like oh no it's my turn and I'm paranoid now mind you I'm coming down and I need to get my stuff and I'm like my name is Jennifer I'm like you and they applauded and I kind of waved I didn't know what to do so I waved <laughs> Oh my God. And, uh, and I sat there for like five minutes and I was like, this is like twilight zone. Not what I thought it was. Like, I gotta go. I gotta leave. I gotta go to my guy's house, you know? And, uh, and, uh, I get out of the, I'm about to walk down the double doors, walk out of the thing. And I hear this voice. Now, mind you, this is the first of the voices, not the last, but it was actually a real voice this time besides the echoes. Um, and, and I hear Jennifer and I turn around, I go, doo, doo, doo guy talking to me and I'm like yeah like jaw grinding nose dripping sweating thinking I'm sexy um he's like you know there's a meeting here tomorrow at noon you should come and I'm like all right cool thanks and I'm like thinking to myself he so wants me you know like I was so self-centered egotistical vain inconsiderate like I literally thought the world revolved around me even months into the sobriety um but I want to let you know after doing the work I no longer think the world revolves around me at all whatsoever um but i remember getting in my car that day and i was like guys just two blocks my guys down there two blocks down 
or home. You know, I could go sleep it off because I've done that before. And if I wake up and I need some, I'll come back. Yeah, that's what I'll do. So I go home for him, that guy that talked to me. Um, I eat for him. I sleep for him. I showered for him. I got all done up for him and I showed up the next day for him. And, uh, I remember there was a lot more people in there, but the people from the day before were coming up and they were hugging me and they were all like, welcome. And I remember this one guy hugged me so tight and he was like, girl, you're not gacked out. And I was like, step off, you fake axes. You know, like I thought they were all fake. Like, what were they doing? What did they want from me? You know? And uh, I'm looking for him, that guy from before. And uh, I'm looking around, the meeting started, the meeting ended, and I've never seen him since. Oh, and wow. and uh, I got to tell you, that man to me, he is my angel, my Eskimo. I'm eternally grateful for him. I think he told me his name was Dave. I can't fully remember. But all he was saying that day was, keep coming back. You're welcome here. And the seed was planted. And I got to tell you, it's never, ever been the same since. And wow. what had happened to me was I cleaned up and I cleaned up really quick. And I got all, I, I call it making it shiny and pretty on the outside. I got everything back. I got a guy back, got the jobs back, was modeling, doing all this stuff. I was studying because I wanted to end modeling before it ended me. I wanted to get into acting. And uh, one of the things I had done with Bruce Weber, who had discovered me, was a movie called Let's Get Lost. And I didn't know this until a few years ago, but it got nominated for Best Documentary. It was a documentary on Chet Baker. So my first movie wow. I ever did was an Oscar nominated movie. Like the, I, the, that's so crazy to even be able to say. And, um, and I wanted to get into acting. Like I knew that my voice didn't matter as a model because that's what they told me. They told me I was replaceable. They told me I was just a hanger. And anytime I had a creative input that, you know, my voice never mattered. So growing up, that's really what I thought. And they told me, they taught me that I was only as good as my next job cover campaign you know and i feel like society today still does that to people you are what you do and like what i do for a living i love i believe people should have a, a passion and live it and dream it but what i do for a living helps me get water and like eat and take care of my family and and whatnot but i love what i do but i who i am on the inside there's so much more depth and weight to me today um and i'm grateful to say that but um i um was studying to to get um to to act and and i never did any internal work so that whole that void that spiritual malady that we suffer from just got bigger and bigger and bigger on the inside but on the outside it all looked great i'm fine you know and yep. uh all of a sudden i get my breakout role and it's a movie called blow with johnny depp and penelope cruz and ray liotta and it's like my breakout performance the irony of that playing a crazy coked out colombian woman from the 70s <laughs> um, and uh, and then I get another movie, Vanilla Sky, with Tom Cruise, and and I get Charlie's Angels with Cameron Diaz and and Drew Barrymore, and like now I'm the It Girl, and I do Corky Romano, and I do Sweetest Thing with Jason Bateman, and like I'm in every like red carpet, all the award seasons, and and are you clean? Uh, well, I'll, I'm not gonna lie, I was sober in the beginning of Blow, not in the end, not at I all. Got it. And you know, I'm glad you asked that question because. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, like what success is to me or what failure is to me. I was bound to relapse. I had no foundation. I did no inner work. So I was bound. And, and that's, that's for anyone. If you do not do the foundation, you don't do the internal work, we're bound to fail. 
you know, um, and that's been my story time and time again. So that vicious circle, that revolving door started for me, you know, I would, when I thought the going got tough, I'd, you know, clean up, I'd get three days. I got a lot of three days and a lot of 30 days, um, as well. Um, and, uh, and then I go back to using, you know, I'd go back to getting what I needed to get, however I needed to get. And I'd go back to my old tools, my survival tools, instead of, you know, life tools, you know, spiritual tools, uh, that we need to use in recovery. And um, here I am again, you know, I'm at the top of my game and I'm all these other movies and I'm doing all these things. I'm working with Mick Jagger doing all this stuff and I can't stay sober. Uh, I would get like, I think the most I got time was like a year and a half or so, but again, untreated, you know, dry. Uh, and um, I, I, I fell from grace yet again. And in 11 and a half months, my life, uh, ended up in a shoebox with all the drugs in there in a shoe closet. Um, the world was after me in LA. We have a lot of helicopters. So I was always like sliding through things because they were always going, coming after me. They weren't. Um, I had suffered a mini stroke. Uh, I, wow. yeah, I remember going there, telling them I wasn't on drugs. My mom was like really worried and, and I pulled everything out because they were going to test me. And I knew that I, I thought I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. I was so afraid of that. And that night, you know, I, I hurt my mom physically. I wanted her out of my house, not a proud moment. But I think it's really important for us to tell on ourselves, you know, um, because this may be able to help someone else, you know, and, and I hurt her and she left. And when soon as she left. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N ojai.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I called the dealer and I kept using, I just had a stroke. Like, I mean, that makes no sense. Me sober. Did the stroke happen because of the drugs? Mm -hmm. Was it related? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I disconnected my jaw on a gacked out moment. I suffer the consequences of that till this day on a, on a moment to moment basis, especially when I speak a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought the world was okay. I thought it was okay that I'd be covered in blood because my nose was just, 
you know, bleeding profusely from doing so much drugs, you know. Um, my mom and my best friend came to me. Uh, this is in 2004, and they said I need to go to treatment. I'm looking at them with my jaw disconnected, blood just dripping down. Forget showering, that went weeks on end. And uh, looking at them, and I said, treatment's for losers. You know, and uh, that day didn't go very well. I don't know if anyone's ever had like people come and tell them they need help or to have an intervention that doesn't go well. Didn't go well. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, they ended up leaving and I went on a two week run and then I just went, fine, I'll go for two weeks. And I went under my terms, you know, I most, I know a lot of people that tend to go to treatment under their terms. I was going for five days. So I was going to shut those two women up. I needed to eat and sleep anyways. And uh, then I had a whole master plan of what I was going to do and how I was going to do it, when I was going to stop. I had it all planned out. Um, I got to this place on July 12th of 05 and uh, my detox alone lasted three and a half weeks. Um, they shut down my short-term memory. I remember all these doctors like in the detox looking at me and, and they were like, what do we diagnose her? And I was like, an addict perhaps, hello. Like I still understand <laughs> like I'm a drug addict. And um, one of those doctors happened to have been a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Drew. Uh, and uh, from VH1, Sober Rehab, and Sober House and stuff. And he had uh, called my mom on three different occasions during that detox and said that I may die from the alcohol withdrawals. I was having so many seizures, and it's that severe. And um, when I finally went into the rehab part, uh, I was so loaded in treatment. My main doctor was like a mad chemist. And uh, I, I, it was so much was going on. And I just remember I was one of those bad kids in treatment that like, you know, I remember they would ask me like, how are you doing today? And I'd be like, I don't know. How do you want me to be? You want me to be happy? I'm going to cry. You want tears? What do you want from me? But like, even though I was being an ass, like I really meant it. Like, what do you want me to feel? Because I'll feel right. that for you. You know, and that was part of my people pleasing or becoming what you wanted me to, because I had no idea what that was. Like I had no voice for that, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, I ended up relapsing there uh, in treatment. I called my dealer as a family member and uh, my five days lasted from July uh, 12th until November 2nd. Uh, it lasted a lot longer than five days. And I left and I left for 10 weeks and it felt like one long night. And uh, I was buying over an eight ball of cocaine. I didn't understand why I would not off and the cigarettes would burn. I still have the scars on my fingers from the, them burning in, on my hands and legs. And um, I'd come to and I was still thinking about people and I was thinking about Dr. Drew's little smirk he does. And uh, I was thinking about like who was in group and what was going on in treatment. And for a girl who wanted to numb herself, to be thinking like that was the worst place to be. And um, my mom came to me and she said, Jenny, I need you to come to the house. I'm going to pack your bags. You're going to come stay with me. I don't care if you drink or use. I want to be there. I want to be there for you. I want to watch you take your last breath. You don't deserve yeah. to die alone. I need to be with you. I bared you into this world and, and I want to see you out of this world. If you die, you're going to die and I need to be there. And um, wow. I was okay with that. Yeah. Ooh, my little brother would call me and say, I love you, Jenny. Not today. Please not today. I beg you not to die today. I don't know how to live life without you. Um, I just want you to know I love you more than anything. And I was okay with that. And on this particular day, I remember doing my stuff and I went to my mom's room um, at her house, I went to her room and she was on her knees, you know, praying and crying like she was every day. And I said, take me back to treatment. And 
I don't know about anyone else when they've asked for help and then realized they asked for help and didn't want the help. Well, I realized mm -hmm. it when I was in moving motion in the car. And uh, I walked into treatment that day. My mom didn't budge. You know, um, Al-Anon had gotten a hold of her with the first time in treatment and family group did too. So she had a little bit of tools and she didn't listen to me. And I walked into Las Encinas, the place I got sober at, with the clothes on my back, you know. Um, and uh, my doctor, they tested me as soon as I got there. And I tested positive for heroin, speed, horse tranquilizer, rat poison, gasoline, name it. It was all in there. And I thought I was just buying cocaine. Um, wow. And now it's even 10 50 times worse, you know, what they put into those drugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, they said I needed to detox in the psych ward. And I looked at them and went, whatever, you know, and uh, I was just in that treatment center 10 weeks prior. And I remember being in the elevator and the two techs next to me and my mom behind me crying and the doctor was in there. And I remember the double doors opening up and the double doors slamming shut and all the from the locks. And there was a line friends and family couldn't cross. My head was down. I just felt like dead woman walking. Like, how did I, me of all people, get here? All I wanted was that relief. I wanted to feel like they did in Argentina when I was 12 years old. That's all I wanted was just a little bit of relief. And from there to here in a psych ward, how did I get here? And everything that happened to me in between those years, you know, I have experienced a lot, a lot of dark things. You know, I have been abused from head to toe, inside and out. I mean, and I have done a lot, a lot of dark things as well. And see, that's what drugs and alcohol does to you, you know. Right. Um, I remember seeing a man uh, sitting on, in a wheelchair with his eyes rolling back and he was drooling. And there's a guy screaming at the end of the hallway and he was getting tackled by two techs because he was trying to run down the corridor naked. God bless him. And uh, my room was the last room to the left. And I remember just sitting at the edge of the bed and the techs knew me because I had been there prior in the whole treatment center part. And uh, they said they need to go get the rest of the assessment papers. And I said, I need to go to the restroom any anyways. And they said, go ahead. And I went to the restroom and they, there's no doors connecting into the bathroom, into the bedrooms there. And they take away psych wards, sharp objects, shoelaces, anything you can hurt yourself or anyone else away from you. And when I got up, I realized they forgot the belt. And just like that, I kid you not, I looked up and I started seeing all these objects. And I went on top of one of the beds, I put my belt through there and secured it in the object. And then I put my neck through there and I hung myself. And that was January 15, 2006. And the last oh thing God. I remember were my feet were dangling and everything went black. And when I came to, I was so upset. I was so upset because I couldn't live and I couldn't die correctly. And I was stuck in this hell of a vessel called me. You know, I couldn't even die right. You know, um, they put me on a 5150 in California and we have 5250. It's a Baker's Act on the East Coast. Um, is what they call it. Yeah. Um, because of the fixation, I had a lot of complications. I couldn't speak. It took me three months to learn to form sentences, but my brain worked perfectly. So I would try to connect that and it wouldn't work. Um, I would stutter, take me a minute and a half to say, I'm going to be like this forever. And I just, you know, just keep repeating the same word. And the doctors would look at me just deadpan and they were like, maybe. Um, I would try to like lean over from my bed and I'd say to my brain, right foot move and I'd fall. I was in, uh, I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair from a wheelchair. I went to a walker, then a cane, then I freely learned to walk again. Um, I shook profusely for nine months. That dwindled down um, after nine months, my feet and my, my hands. Um, I had no control of my bodily functions. I was in, in uh, depends, I like to call them diapers. And I threw up profusely all over myself from the detoxing and my bones felt like 
like they were breaking from inside out. It was like such a torturous feeling. And uh, I remember one day I was in this, um, in my wheelchair by the window and they had two windows and it was, bar, there's bars and frost on it. And I could hear people cause it was on the second floor and they had open meetings going on. And I cracked it open like a quarter of an inch and I could smell people's smoke and everyone was laughing cause somebody was telling a joke and from far away, somebody was yelling at someone and I could hear their chatter. And I felt this feeling that I literally didn't understand going on down there into my soul. And I said to God in my head, God, is it humanly possible for a girl like me to ever feel what they're feeling? And if so, I'll go to any lengths. And that day, I call that day my day of surrender, you know, and my day of wow. desperation. And um, I, that girl that said that that day in that wheelchair still resides so alive inside of me, you know, and, and I, and I'm very grateful that I can remember that so clearly and so vividly. Uh, it, uh, thank God, nowhere in any anonymous book does it say you have to look cute while recovering because that's not been my story whatsoever. Um, I've had to learn a lot of things, pretty much everything all over. And um, I stayed from January 15th until April 30th and I was gonna do the aftercare plan. I was ready to go, but I needed to get my life back, right? And uh, a lot of addicts and alcoholics wanna do that. Um, you know, it's time, it's time, my kids, my family, my career, my job, or this. And when I went back to LA, all I did was contemplate suicide and using every single day. You know, um, my sponsor at nine months sober finally said my, when I was nine months sober, she said, I can't enable you into a grave, but I can help you if you're willing to go into and go to any lengths to stay sober, the program way. And I said, what does that look like? She said, you're going to put your life in storage. You're going to go and live in a sober living. I had made millions. I lost every single penny. I only had enough for a month and a half. And then I went and, and stayed at old timers houses or my mom's temporarily. Like, you know, we had to learn to dance and new dance instead of the funky dance that we had before. Um, and I had to go to meetings where my, so my sponsor got sober in Crenshaw 96 in the hood. Um, and uh, those people there, they would be like, I would always have like answers. So it was my turn to share, share every time. And they'd be like, oh, look what the little princess have to say. I mean, they taught me universal love. They'd be like, sit down, shut the F up and listen and shadow your sponsor. And everything's in the big book, you know? And, and I'm a big advocate that like for me, recovery, I've learned through different phases, but I always go, the program is what I do. Um, I've done other things like meditation and therapy. And I mean, I believe in all different things in church and all that stuff, but I have to do everything based off first and foremost my foundation is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous um, um, but I um, I think that whatever works for anyone you know not everybody has to do it that way um, I don't also believe that everyone has to go to treatment either um, I know that that's not really that a lot of people don't say that but you know if, if you do the work you know if you do the internal work deal with the traumas. If you don't not deal with traumas, the spiritual aspect of it as well, and uh, the physical and the mental, like then it, you're doomed. You know, you really are. That's right. Um, so there's a lot of digging that you have to get into. And, and um, I'm so grateful for those people in, in, in 96 and 46 in, in Crenshaw as well. Like they, mm -hmm. they bought rebirthed me they really did um i was unemployable i they would collect money for me to be on my meds they said it was adamant that i stay on my meds um in order for me to be able to stay sober and do the work um in sobriety and i was diagnosed everything when i got into treatment like no shit i was on drugs you know but what i mm -hmm. suffer from is depression 
And it takes about mm. six months for them to figure that out. But uh, when I found that out, uh, I would, I had tools. I got spiritual tools given to me and I'm so grateful for those. And I got to say, even up until like 12 and a half, 13 years sober, I would have like, I'd be in day two or three of depression. I'd be like, that's what it is. Call my whole team. You know, I'm, I have a team of people that I'm constantly checking in with and I'm accountable to, you know, and I, I tell them myself and all of a sudden, you know, I, um, During that time, uh, I was unemployable. I called Hollywood a chapter. I I was taught my sponsor when I when she told me, you know, I can't enable you into a grave, but if you want to do it the program way, this is what it looks like. Um, She said, I need you to believe in something bigger than yourself. Do you think that's humanly possible? I don't give a (laughs) shit if it's a doorknob, whatever it is. Is that humanly possible? I'm like. I guess. Okay. She goes, good. You'll never lack. And I got to tell you, not one day in my sobriety, not one day have I ever lacked. I may not have gotten what I wanted, but I've never lacked. Um, wow. I've always have a, had a roof over my head, a pillow to sleep on and food on my table and my plate. Um, I had, she said, I don't want you to drink. I don't want you to use. I don't want you to hurt anyone or hurt yourself. Uh, no sex and no relationship. I was like, hold up. No sex. You know? And she was like, a nickel between your knees and I was like what I did it I got it and she said you're not gonna act out and I had other isms like I wasn't allowed to watch tabloid tv or or look at magazines or like compare myself I couldn't look in the mirror but for five minutes to brush my teeth in the morning that was it and comb my hair um and I needed to not look on on the outside stuff and I had to work on the inside stuff and I thought okay fine I'll give them a shot because it's never worked my way so I started working internally and all of a sudden when I started working internally there was so much pain that was in there that I didn't realize I was um eating and I had still was on meds it took me two and a half years to wind off meds completely doctor's orders um and uh I ended up gaining over 140 100 I I lost 140 pounds. So I gained over 140 pounds. In wow. Yeah. So like those 15 freshmen that were fifth, freshmen 15 that they talk about, I went from being anorexic to obesity. So I've do- dealt with every eating disorder in between as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I called Hollywood a chapter, I was just in service. That's all I did. I was at meetings after meetings. I had so many commitments and, um, I started bringing people to where I got sober, the hospital I got sober at, and I had a lot of friends from the entertainment world that had a lot of long-term sobriety, and I'd have them come speak, and I changed that whole entire treatment center uh, around with all the H&Is, hospitals and institutions, and the meetings, um, different uh, uh, 12-step meetings going on there, and so it became like the place to go, like that people would come to, and um, Dr. Drew started giving me his high-profile clients for fun and for free to sponsor, and uh, Dr. Drew, by the way, said his first year that he predicted me dead. He said, just go through the motions with her. She's one of those wow. that need to die for the rest of them to, to live. And he knew that I knew he had said that about him and me. Um, at two and a half years sober, uh, he said, "My spot, this is like a big aha moment for me. They told me it was time to get a job. And I was like, uh, I don't know who I want to be or what I want to do. And they're like, great, write it down. Why don't you write down who you want to be, what you want to do. Oh, and shoot, you know, dream big, shoot for the stars. I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, oh, and you're going to go apply at two places. I'm like, where? And I remember my sponsor went like this so vividly. She was like, I don't know, uh, Starbucks and Target. Yeah, Starbucks and Target, just like that. And I looked at her and I went, what the F am I going to give him a headshot and a resume? Like I have no job skills. Like I had no (laughs) job skills whatsoever. And she said, faith without works is dead. Now start writing and then go apply today. And I went, 
oh my God, I could feel the humility. But I wanted to prove her wrong. You know, there's those times you just want to prove that the program or something doesn't work. You know, and I wrote down things like 85 things. I wrote down like, I want to make a difference. I want to stand for something. I want to be on TV. I want to be a businesswoman. Blah, blah, blah. I want a huge platform. I want to be in magazines, this and that. Well, out of those 85, 47 of them now have come true. Wow. And uh, my thing, my point to that is uh, be careful what you ask for because it will come. Um, when I realized that when I went back to LA, and I'm going to go back a little bit, when I went back to LA and I realized that all I did was contemplate suicide and using and I couldn't, I couldn't even get up to go try to get my life together, I had no game left in me. And there's two desires I always hope for for a newcomer is a gift of desperation and that they have no game left in them. Because with that, there's a blank canvas that you can totally paint and create the life that you want. And I promise you, it will come. You know, it will come. Maybe not as fast as you want it to, or maybe it will, but it will come. And uh, <clears throat> at that time, uh, Dr. Drew, I had applied to those two places. Um, and Dr. Drew had come to me six weeks later and said, you know, I'm doing this split-off show called um, Sober House on VH1 after Sober Rehab. I'd like you to run the house. And I said, why me? Because I had heard what he had said and he knew that. And he said, because it's people like you that prove me wrong and keep me doing what I'm doing. So I want to thank you for that. And I just smirked back wow. at him. I just went, ain't that about a bitch? And it just felt so good, you know. And I love Dr. Drew. I do love him very much. He gave me a second chance. And he... Um, I was that's incredible yeah. and it's incredible that he does that because you definitely proved him wrong yeah yeah you know and like <laughs> he he was it's amazing to say that I was part of his team for as long as I was you know and he's still like family to me we still Tim and I still talk to him all the time um and I did two seasons of Sober House and three of Sober Rehab and I started losing weight you know I wanted everything to connect body mind and spirit and uh I remember going on CNN and in like a few years, like in that time after the first season of Sober Rehab came out and I'd lost like 60 pounds or so. And like getting sober is one thing, losing weight, that's a whole nother thing. And my God, I, my higher power has a funny sense of humor. Like if I don't eat, I start gagging now. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, I have to eat. I can't do it the way I used to do it. You know, the no right. eating or the, no, you know, I can't do any of that stuff. I had to do it the right way this time. And, um, yes. That, uh, I remember going on CNN and they were talking about like losing weight and this and that. And I just came on, I was like, well, I have an eating disorder. And I was like, oh no. Like, and what I was taught in those rooms in Crenshaw in 96 was to stand in my truth. And that I can't go wrong if I stand in my truth. I may feel wobbly, but I can't. So I'm on national TV with like all these professionals and I'm like, I was from anorexic to obesity and I'm, you know, I have eating disorders and I did this and that and the modeling world did this and that. And I was like, uh oh, what just came out? And they were like, you were awesome. Can you come on tomorrow? You know, and like, <laughs> it became this whole thing story. And, uh, and so from there, I started doing other shows. I was on Housewives of Beverly Hills um, for four seasons. I wasn't a, a wife. I was just the official friend on there. But it was why I did that show was, A, my best friend, Brandy, who helped me get sober with my mom, uh, when they told me I needed to go to treatment, was on it. And, uh, B, uh, it was a huge platform to keep carrying the message. So whatever I do is always, my underlining is how can I carry the message? Unless I'm doing an acting job, you know, and I'm doing a movie or something. That's a creative outlet for me. And uh, I actually put acting on hold. I did like four movies back and they told me I couldn't because I was a reality girl. And uh, I was like, I know, you say no to me. This is great. Because I remember that the people in the rooms always told me that if my will's aligned with God's will, um, that I could become whoever I wanted at any given time. I may 
have to work really hard on it. But I, no one gets to tell me no. Like I get to figure it out for myself. Right. And uh, right. what had happened through that time was I found my voice. My sponsor was a big advocate about finding your voice. And I think it's important because as you are the voice for the voiceless, you know, they used to call me that. And when I think it was, it's crazy that doing those sober house and sober rehabs, those, those were the first shows ever before the interventions or anything. So recently I had done an interview and they were like, how does it feel being the OG of the, you know, of the advocates? And I'm like, what? Like, and I never even thought about it, you know, because all I did was I thought that if I made myself humanized, like, I think it's important to feel humanized. And if I made myself told on myself and told my truth and my experience that it could help somebody else. It wasn't about a movement, you know, it was about just trying to help other people um, for me. Right. And it continues to be that, you know, because I've never been sober on this date and I've never been sober on this day. I've never had this much lot yesterday's put together, you know? Uh, yeah. And uh, it's a new experience for me every day, you know? Um, but then, you know, I, I got four movies and then I decided to put on hold. I went to do a photo shoot seven years ago in Florida uh, in Delray. Didn't know it was Capital Recovery, but boy, did I quickly learn it was Capital Recovery, uh, Florida. And uh, I embarked on a new journey. I, I launched a website and a magazine. I no longer have it um, called Sober Book. It was about people learning to find their voices by telling out their truth to be raw and real is what to be authentic. It was what was, I was taught and people wrote their stories about like how they overcame things or didn't overcome things. And all these celebrities started reaching out to me and they wanted to tell their journey, whether it was good or bad. And, um, it did really well. And then, uh, I started speaking cause I wanted to get it into treatment centers for free and I found my niche and, you know, I got to tell you for six years, I was speaking all across the country everywhere. And, you know, I made that my purpose, especially the last um, four of those years. I, I think it was the last movie I did was in 2016. Um, I, or 15 or 16. And I just dedicated myself to recovery and to speaking and spreading the message because this pandemic and that's going on, you know, with alcoholics and, 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 and addicts, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, to know that the ages are younger and younger and younger. Um, and that, um, that we think that there's a little movement and a little progress going on and yet there's setbacks going on too. Um, and I think this is the first time I've said that out loud. And I, and I, I want to uh, chime in here and here's why, because um, I mentioned um, before I did the interview with Tim, that while this this podcast is going to go up in May, today is April 14th, and there is so much attention on the pandemic of COVID-19, and the pandemic of addiction is a way bigger problem and a and it's not going to go away in May or June when the business is open and the restaurants are open so that you can go sit there. There's still an addiction problem. And if addiction could get a tenth of the attention, sorry, I get passionate about this because I don't think, I, I don't think there's enough being done. There you go. I love that you say that because I'm going to tell you this. By the time this podcast comes out, there's going to be more suicides than ever before. And there's going to be more active addicts and alcoholics out there dying than ever before and created because of what's going on with this, with this coronavirus, COVID-19, um, because we're all isolating. And I'm so blessed 
that I have my husband here. And it is hard because my husband is going through it because he doesn't get to see his kids because we're stuck in California and they're in Chicago. It is hard for me too um, on many fronts. And I have tools and he has tools. Um, imagine the people that don't, you know, exactly. and there is, by the time this comes out, I want to guarantee you that there will be more of a pandemic in our mental health and um, addiction um, than ever before. And yep. uh, it, I have the chills saying that to you right now, because that's how, like, it's heartbreaking what's going on. You know, I can actually order, uh, that's what the, you know, they allow you to, as essential um, uh, things, shops, you can order drinks to be delivered to your house. But like, what about, um, that's not good. That's not good. Like I heard, you know, Tim and I heard that some places were giving out people subutex and methadone for a month in advance because they were shutting down. That's like giving me a month in advance of cocaine. I will have that done by th in three days. Do you know what I mean? If you give me a month's worth. Like, and I say that kind of like, I'm so, I don't even know how to say that without not being uncomfortable and kind of laughing through that. But like, you can't do that and think that people are going to no. be able to handle that correctly. No. Yeah, no, sorry, just, I just got off that's just right there. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's been, yeah. I, I, well, you said the P word, you said pandemic. And when you said it, I went, yeah, yeah, the addiction problem is a way bigger, way worse pandemic than anything this coronavirus will cause. A year and a half, Tim and I have been using pandemic, you know, and it was people you say epidemic, but no pandemic. Are you kidding me? Like we go to high schools and out of 3000 kids, 95% of them have all tried something because Tim does this whole thing where he asks them and about vaping and this, and do you know anyone who's killed, you know, your friends that are drank or done dry and like, they're all raising their hands. You're talking from 11 year olds and to 18 year olds. So how is that not a pandemic? Cause I don't it remember is. people doing that when I was young, like not, not the it drugs wise. I will never use the E word again because it's not appropriate pandemic is exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's been times, even in my sobriety, like when I was about to turn 13, I remember being in Florida and um, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud uh, on a podcast uh, on in front of a camera here, but I, I was going through a lot, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to keep doing the speaking I was doing and it's tiresome, you know, traveling all across the country on your own and doing all this. And I was going from one state, like from Florida to, to uh, uh, Spokane, to Tacoma, to Oregon, to Arizona, to LA, back to, you know, I was all over the place. Like, and that was in just five days. And uh, I um, got him, I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. And I was not really in the trenches of, um, yeah, I was in the trenches of newcomers and detoxes and hospitals. And that is like where I like, I, Tim and I like love being like, right in the, in the middle, like in the trenches where the fire's burning, you know, like that's where you can handle things like in such a chaotic way. Uh, it doesn't sound healthy, but it is the best place to be. You're like right there front line. And, um, and I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. And I didn't know, I thought maybe I should get back into acting. I don't know. And I was uh, in Florida and I, I went through like a, a breakup. I was in a relationship for five years and, and I cried the day that ended. And I got to tell you, I cried for three months and I cried. And I, I remember three months waking up crying. It was month three and uh, I was crying and I realized I was never crying over him. I was crying over myself I was because I lost myself. I made myself small so he could feel big. 
you know, and I'm like the voice of the voiceless and a empowering woman and doing all this, but it was so in my face that I, I was like, am I a fraud? Like for do saying like feeling like what, what? So I came clean about it and I would tell people like everywhere I went, I would talk about it, you know, and, and it didn't matter if it was in treatment or if I was writing about it or whatever. And I needed to say this stuff, you know, and, uh, and I went, God, you know what? I, I just want it to be about work. I want it to be about getting closer to you. And like, I, st I started health. I, I, for nine and a half months, I like just was in doing things like drum circle and therapy and this and that and like giving back. And it was just, I was empowering myself. And uh, I was questioning if I wanted to, to be in this um, industry anymore. I didn't know if it was like, I didn't know. I didn't know. I was just kind of questioning everything. And um, I said, God, there I was again, making a deal. Um, I said, just give me a sign. Just give me a sign. And the next day, this man, Tim Ryan, gets a hold of me. Um, and I didn't have the Facebook app at the time, Messenger app, whatever. I had Facebook, not that Messenger app. And I got on my desktop view, whatever, which was a lot of work for me to do. I'm not tech savvy. And I get this email from him. And I seen that he had comment on my birthday and this and that. And, and, um, or in early January. And uh, I said, okay, well, sure. I'm actually on my way to Florida. He's like, I'm going to be there, you know, this weekend. That's when he blew me off. And then uh, we were talking and when we were talking, when Bonnie started talking, um, it was all business. I didn't want to know anything about him personally. I didn't care. I just want business. <laughs> and he was the same way. And everyone said, oh my God, this Tim Ryan guy is so funny. And he's such a great speaker. And when I talked to him on the phone, he, I was like, he is so dull and where is he from like I had no idea the accent and like I he was like I'm from Chicago I'm like where are you from like it was just like so awkward because we had the same friends and they were like funniest guy you'll ever meet the dullest but it was all business like he was just professional on the phone and he's like I'm from Chicago I'm like are you sure because you don't sound like it like I thought there was some coolness from Chicago or something and uh and so and he is by the way one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life honestly um and uh and finally, you know, maybe like the week that he was coming in to, to meet me, I started hearing about his personal life and what's going on. I'm like, that's awesome. Cool. Okay, whatever. Good, bad. I don't indifferent, right? It's about work. And like, when I saw Tim, it was like this rope with a magnet connected to his underneath his belly button. Like, I feel like that's where the spirit is. Like, and it just connected and it's just been game on ever since. And he, you know, he was going through a divorce and I was like, maybe we, you know, we can just work together and you know, you need to go. So do your guy thing, you know, whatever that is. And he was like, Nope, you're it. And I'm like, no, are you sure? Like, and you know, I, uh, I've never been married. I don't have kids. And so it was really interesting because I was dealing, you know, I, I, you know, I have step, children now and and um i love them so much and to see how much he loves his kids you know like the value is the values of what he has is so beautiful and you know um to be able to build this life and and uh it, it's just been something i just never knew would exist like i believed at love at first sight for you and you and other people i just didn't i never experienced it so i didn't believe it for me um, until it happens and and I'm so glad I waited my whole life for him It's interesting though when I was talking earlier about like I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore And I, I was really questioning a lot of things in December of uh, 2018 um, I literally decided when I said to God give me a sign um, and, or, and Tim comes into my life I also decided that day that I choose to live the second half of my life happy because all my life I've lived 
extraordinary. I have lived an extraordinary life for an ordinary girl. I really have. Um, but I didn't know what happy was. And I, you know, at now 14 plus some years sober, I'm like, oh, this is what happy is, you know, and I've had glimpses <laughs> of it. Um, but I'm so glad I waited my whole life with him. Um, I'm, I never I love that thought that it'd be somebody who has the same passion as I do. And we're very, I'm very alpha and, and he obviously is. And so, and, but I have, uh, I have, I'll say to him, I have boundaries and I also have a little bit more sobriety, you know, that a little bit more experience with that. And so we can get into it. It's really funny, but I have to like learn to, you know, I get to become more female if that makes any, any sense. You know, and I always say, babe, you would not like me if I was submissive. You just would not like me if I was that submissive <laughs> kind of girl. That's just not in, in my nature anyways. Um, and uh, So he's the alpha male and you're the alpha female. Yes, yes. And that's okay. It is okay, it is okay, you know? And, and the acceptance of, you know, he always says, speak your truth. And I'm so about speaking my truth and I'm about telling people like, whatever you say, it's your truth. Like, that's okay. You know? And, and I know that there's a lot of people that struggle and, and there are days that I, you know, we all have our good days and bad days and this, we're all going through this, what's happening right now. And I know this will air after, you know, that hopefully knock on wood after that, this quarantine ends. Um, but there is life after this, you know, um, and to globally be going through something together, um, and also being in, uh, in recovery <laughs> and also having the isms um, go in your head yep. and go, you know, we're fighting threefold, you know, not just twofold and not just onefold. You know, people are like, okay, it's hard to be home. It's so much harder for people like us. Right. Right. But as you say, you have the tools and you have each other and you are both rock stars in my book. I'll just be honest with you. Thank you. And tell me again the website where people can find you and timandjennifer.org. Uh, and you can also find me on social media, Jennifer Jimenez, G I M E N E Z, on all fronts Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, Tim is a man in recovery on Twitter, uh, Dope to Hope on uh, Facebook, Instagram from uh, Dope to Tim Ryan, Dope to Hope. Uh, he changes his name in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know where to find you. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today because your story is the same and not the same as any of the other ones that we've told. And I believe that every time we tell a story, that something in that story will ring true for someone and they will get help. And that's why- Thank I you. This. I really appreciate you doing what you do. Thank you for giving us a platform to have a voice. And I do want to say for all those who are the loved ones of, um, uh, if it wasn't for my mother's prayers, I don't know if I'd be here. So um, there is hope out there. There really is. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with um, Tim Ryan's other half, Tim Ryan's better half, Jennifer Jimenez. She is quite the woman. She's quite inspirational and she really is doing a lot to give back into this whole area of addiction. I am glad that she called it a pandemic. I agree. 
the addiction situation in our country is a pandemic. It is equally, if not more, of a pandemic than the coronavirus could ever be. Once again, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and please find us on YouTube and subscribe there. And whatever you do, if you need help or if you need to get help for a loved one, do it now. Don't wait. Do it while you still can, while there's nothing tragic that has occurred. And there's hope. There's help. You just need to reach out for it. So we'll talk to you again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.